very different culture than they left on the western shore of the lake. In fact, Jesus has actually met with um, a pretty stark reminder of this right away. As Jesus and his disciples finally arrive at their destination after this harrowing boat journey, um, they're met with the strangest of welcoming parties. It says, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And so here we meet this demon-possessed character, often referred to as the demoniac. The, the demoniac of Gerasene or Gergesene or Gerardine, whatever you want to call him. But he's, he's often referred to as the demoniac. And Luke begins with some descriptions of this man that make his sorry state quite apparent. Um, first off, this guy is not wearing any clothes. Um, that's not a great way to make a first impression, right? You get there, you let, you know, you've just gone through all of this boat ride and... You're like, oh, finally made it. And what do you see running at you? A guy with no clothes. That's not, uh, that's not a great way to make first impression. I don't think that was included in Dale Carnegie's ways to, to make friends and influence people. That wasn't one of the 12 things that he gave you. And I have to imagine, we don't get, we don't get any views into the, the disciples' reaction or, or what they're thinking during this. They're not, we know they're there, but we don't really get a view into what they're thinking. But I have to imagine, after they've just gone through what we, what we saw them go through a couple of weeks ago as they crossed the sea, um, they, they probably don't have much in their stomachs. Um, they're probably ready to get off that boat. And I have to think that they're kind of thinking, oh, great, like... What's going to happen here? So we see, first off, this guy isn't wearing any clothes. He's running at them from his home, which was living among the tombs. Uh, and th- there's another indicator here that we're in Gentile territory, that they weren't in Kansas or whatever the, the Jewish equivalent of Kansas is anymore. In Jewish culture, again, on the other side of the lake, this man wouldn't have been associated with, regardless of his wardrobe choice, uh, because he would have been considered unclean, having been living among the tombs, been touching dead bodies, been uh, among them touching the beds that they were in, the blankets, you know. Th- this guy just, they would have stared clear. Generally, the Jews probably would have just avoided this region. If people heard Jesus say, why don't we go to the other side of the lake, the reaction to that might have been, why? Why would you do that? You you know it's over there? But again, we see Jesus, as he tends to do, seek out those who others may avoid. And so the demoniac is also described as having superhuman strength. If we cheat a little bit and we look ahead to the second half of verse 29, we see uh, it says many times it had seized him, talking about the demon. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. The book of Mark in its account describes it this way, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet no one was strong enough to subdue him. So this is a guy that's got superhuman strength. They try and chain him up, metal chains, hand and foot. The guy breaks the chains, tears the shackles off of his, off of his arms and his feet. In the account of Mark, we also see this man engaged in self-mutilating behavior. Um, verse 5, it says, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And the account of Matthew described this man and how his violent nature was well known to the residents in the area. 
In Matthew 8, it says that he was so violent that no one could pass that way. People knew where he lived, knew kind of where he hung out, and they avoided it because no one could get by him. He was violent. And so this is, this is not the kind of guy that you're hanging out with on Saturday night. We have this man, he's written off by, by everyone. Jews would have gone the other way the minute they saw him walking out of those tombs, wanted nothing to do with him. His own people obviously had, had written him off, said, well, we're not going to try and chain him up, contain him or anything. We, he can just go and live off on his own and we'll just avoid him. But again, we see Jesus take a lost cause and turn it around for his cause. And so as soon as the demoniac sees Jesus, something in his demeanor shifts, right? They step off the shore and they see this guy running towards him and this guy sees Jesus. So when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. Rather than lashing out in violence at Jesus, he didn't run up and just start trying to beat on Jesus. He runs up, sees who it is and falls on his feet. Now he starts to shout at Jesus, which isn't very nice, but there's at least some sort of uh, restraint there. And instead of being untamable, falling at someone's feet is a sign of submission, right? So immediately we start to see that this man's demeanor changes the minute that he sees Jesus. And as soon as the man opens his mouth, he reveals that this demon has prior knowledge of who exactly Jesus is. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And in fact, this is actually the answer to a question the disciples posed about three or four verses earlier. In verse 25, Luke 8, 25, the second half of that, after Jesus has has shown his authority over the very forces of nature, the disciples ask one another, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Who is this man? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And that, that question is kind of left hanging out there. They don't, they don't really necessarily answer it. But then as soon as they see this demon who, has, who knows exactly who Jesus is, we get that answer. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demon in this story doesn't need to ask that question. Who is this man? Because he already knows the answer and he's afraid because of it. I beg you, don't torture me. And Jesus had authority over him, for Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. The the demon's fear of Jesus stems again from that authority that Jesus has over the demonic. Before Jesus arrived, they'd found a pretty comfortable situation for themselves, right? They'd found a guy that uh, they could possess, they could oppress, and the results of their work in this man's life had gained notoriety. And it had caused disruption in this man's life and in the lives of those that knew him and those that were even just lived in the same area. All in all, that was a pretty successful situation for a demon to be in, if we're talking in in, in those terms. But now Jesus has come along and they know their party is over. I beg you, don't torture me. And what happens next can only be described, I think, as strange. Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. 
When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. In this interaction we see at the very beginning of that, uh, of Jesus asking the demon's name, reveals to us that this isn't a, a one-on-one encounter that Jesus is having. This isn't an even playing field if, you're, if we're talking about just pure numbers, Jesus against one demon. No, he says, my name is Legion, uh, referring to the, the largest... Um, size of, of a unit in the Roman army, which would have been a legion, which is about 5,600 soldiers. And so we don't necessarily know if 5,600 is the exact number of, of demons that were in this man, but we can safely assume that there were many demons in this man. But even with that numbers advantage, um, these demons are, are kind of consigned to just begging Jesus um, to let them go into this herd of pigs. They don't want to go back into the abyss, which we, we assume uh, is some form of prison for demons, which removes them from any ability to, to influence the world. Just send us into the pigs. And again here, if we, just, if we take a moment and we, we just talk, think about the, the presence of this swine herd, this, this herd of pigs, there's another kind of indicator that they're not in a, a, a place that it's filled with Jewish people. The, the, again, that would be another place. There's tombs there. There are pigs there. Let's keep on sailing. But again, Jesus has chosen to come here. He's chosen still to come and minister to these people. And so Jesus does give the demons permission to enter the pigs, which causes the pigs to go into a panic and rush off a cliff into the water and drown, thus ending the very, very strange saga of Legion. That's one of those... That's just weird. That's just strange. Have you ever experienced, had one of those experiences where you watch something happen and, and you have to ask yourself, did that really just happen? With all this talk of, of Jesus calming the storm uh, from a couple of weeks ago and then we had all this severe weather earlier uh, this week on, on, I think it was Monday, kind of reminded me of, of that type of story um, about 10 years ago, I remember uh, there was a, a set of storms that came through Rochester. And it was one of those where, like the day leading up to it, they were saying, it's going to be bad storms tonight. It's going to be bad storms tonight. Uh, just be, be weather aware. That's the, that's the term, right? And so the storms rolled in in the afternoon. Severe thunderstorm warnings were issued. Um, and so my dad and I hunkered down in our, the place that we go when there are severe thunderstorms. And that's right in front of the big window on the western-facing side of our house. And I just remember this real nonchalant sort of interaction that I had with my dad. We're, we're, he and I are pretty similar, so we probably were both standing there either with our hands in our pockets or our arms crossed. I remember watching the storm roll in and kind of saying, huh, it's pretty windy. And then followed by crack, crash, my dad saying, there went a tree. And uh, after that, we backed up from the window a little bit. But it was one of those things, after the storm cleared, we, we went out um, to kind of survey what had happened and kind of didn't realize as we were standing at that window how, how close we had come from, from actually some danger. So you can see this. This is the picture of the tree. And, you know, right where that tree ends, that window right above it, that's about where we were standing. So, you know, maybe three or four feet longer, that would have been a more exciting story, you know. 
But I remember then just kind of standing on our deck and looking at this and, and just kind of being, did that just happen? I have to imagine that for the people tending these pigs, they kind of had that same question, right? If my dad and I were tending the pigs, it may have gone similar uh, to, to that experience. We'd be standing there and say, hey, there's that crazy guy talking to those people that just got here on the boat. My dad would go, there go the pigs. <laughs> I have to imagine that maybe their reaction was a little bit different than that. But the point here is that there were other people that witnessed this all happen. Um, and it was one of those things, I'm sure, like, what in the world just happened? There went all of our pigs, they just, they're gone. And so the swine herders, upon, upon witnessing this, ran back to civilization, ran back to the town where the story that I have to imagine began with, you're never going to believe what just happened. And the people from the area, from the town, needing to see it with their own eyes, they returned to the scene uh, to see a man radically different from the one that they had come to know. This is what uh, the, the passage here reads, when those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people of how the demon-possessed man had been cured. So again, these people come back, and they see a man that's radically different from the one that they had come to know, the one they come to fear, the one they come to avoid. This man had been possessed by numerous demons, perhaps thousands, and they had left him. The man had thrown himself down and shouted at Jesus, and now he was calmly sitting at Jesus' feet as a teacher might, or as a student might with a teacher. The man who had previously gone around naked was clothed once more, and the man who had been crazed, violent, self-harming was once again in his right mind. And so most, if not all of those who, who had resided kind of in at least the the running distance vicinity of this had heard and witnessed this event. This demon-possessed man had been cured by a stranger that came across the lake. And in the process, a whole herd of their pigs had been lost. And here's where we encounter people having different opinions about the same event, right? We had, first, we have the residents of the area who really don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. Verse 37 says, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. Jesus' power and authority over the supernatural was frightening to them. As we've seen, these people were well acquainted with this man's ailment, having tried to seize him and bind him and to subdue him on numerous occasions with no success whatsoever. And all of a sudden, this man shows up on a boat And he takes care of these issues seemingly with no problem. And I think this is a great reminder that that kind of the transformative power of Jesus, the way that he can transform a person's life, can be scary to those who haven't seen it or witnessed it themselves. But for those of us who have experienced the transformative power of Christ, we should strive to then be like the man in the story because his, his reaction to this whole course of events is very different from the town people. He says, The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, to go with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. 
So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This man, the former demoniac, is so thankful and excited about what Jesus has done for him that he wants to go and get on that boat with Jesus and leave with him and follow him. He wants to be like Jesus' disciples, traveling and learning and witnessing all of the things that Jesus is doing. But Jesus has a different, uh, more important task for this guy. It's clear that Jesus is not welcome here. He's just been told probably not so kindly to leave. And his foray into this Gentile region, Gentile territory is not going to last very long. And so instead, Jesus commissions this man to be his witness, his insider in the region, a witness to the Gentiles. He tells the man to go back home, which if you look at it, that's, that's the final step in, in full recovery, right? Is, he says, go home, Don't, not to the tombs, but go back to your home and tell these people all that God has done for you. In fact, if you look back at the story of Luke so far, this is the first person that Jesus has specifically sent to go and tell about what he's done. A lot of the other times, Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this yet. And Jesus hasn't set out the 12 yet with the message. That's going to happen in about a half a chapter. The very beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12. So this is the first guy that Jesus sends with his message to go and tell people. And he doesn't send them to Capernaum. He doesn't send them to Jerusalem. He sends them into the Decapolis, into the Gentile region. Again, reminding us that Jesus came not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile too. That's important. (laughs) It's real important for us, right? This man is Jesus' chosen vessel to be that first person to take his message to the Gentiles as a sort of precursor, if you will, to what we see take place in the book of Acts. And obviously, this was the entire purpose of Jesus, for which Jesus decided to go over onto the other side of the lake. He didn't, he didn't last long there. This isn't a surprise to Jesus that he's getting back on the boat and going the other direction. He came, and he came with a purpose. Jesus' stay in Gentile territory doesn't last long. He barely even makes it past the shoreline, but his mission was accomplished. And I think... The thing that I find the most encouraging about this account is the instructions that Jesus gives to this guy. He doesn't say, go home and teach everyone the finer points of theology. Or he doesn't say, go home and impress people with your knowledge of Scripture. This guy probably doesn't have any knowledge of Scripture. He doesn't say, go home and debate the existence of God with your neighbors who disagree with you. He simply says, go home and tell how much God has done for you. That's not too much to ask, right? That's that's not an unreasonable request. Jesus' instructions here are a great reminder of the power of of just testimony. Testimony has been a tool used by years, right? Advertising companies use testimonials of strangers to try and make you buy products every single day. And testimonies about a product or a service from a friend, someone that you trust, are that much more um, powerful, right? I'm, I'm more likely to take the suggestion of a friend about a product than someone on the TV. And testimonies about the grace of Jesus Christ are the same way. Oftentimes the most powerful, effective, impactful testimonies come from the people that we interact with on a daily basis, the people from your town, if you will, right? The communities that we're a part of. 
A person who doesn't know Jesus certainly could walk through that door on any given Sunday, hear part of my testimony, hear part of Pastor Nathan's testimony, hear part of John Young's testimony or Tom Trzynski's testimony and be moved by it because testimonies have that power. But there are many, many people who would never walk through that door. That's a non-starter. That's not something they're interested in. You're not going to make them do that. And that's where the testimonies of everyone come in. Much like Jesus called this man to share his experience in his community, we too are called to share our experience in our community. And that community might be work, it might be school, it might be at the gym, it might be with the other parents or kids uh, at the soccer game or basketball game or the hockey game or the dance recital or whatever it is. Whoever is part of the communities that you're a part of. And the best part about testimonies is they're a constantly evolving thing, right? They're constantly being added to. We don't really know what happened to this, to the demoniac, to this man after the story goes and he tells, and that's really all we know. But I have to imagine that his life was changed. This guy might have been able to go and get a job and be a normal part of, of society, which obviously would not, was not an option in his previous state. Who knows? This guy might have gone, gotten married, had kids not something that was possible before. Who knows exactly what happened, but we can be confident that Jesus' action in his life didn't just end there, that, that the impact and the results and the changes that happened in him weren't temporary or didn't just stop there. Jesus' actions transformed him and provided him with an incredible story to tell. And so I want to leave you today with, with just a few questions to, to rattle around in your head about this idea of, of testimony and the power of testimony. Uh, first is, what, what has Jesus done for you that's worth sharing? What are those things? I think sometimes we can take the grace of Jesus for granted when we're around it so often, when it's so a part of our lives that we don't continue to identify those things specifically as as things that God is doing in our lives. So, so what are, what has Jesus, what is Jesus doing for you that's worth sharing? Second question, what, what communities are you a part of? If you're here this morning, you're part of our community. But what other, when you walk out that door, where are you going? Tuesday morning, where are you going? What are your hobbies? What are, who are the people that you spend time with? What is your community? And then what, what opportunities do you have to share those things that Jesus has done for you in those communities? Where, where are those opportunities? Is there a parent that you, you, know, you just tend to find yourself next to on the sideline during a game and you, you, know, you talk about soccer, but that's about it? What are the opportunities that you have to share in those communities? And then finally, what, if anything, maybe you're really good at this, and if you are, I want to hear about that because I want to I learn. But what, what, if anything, is holding you back in those scenarios? And, and I'm sure that there, I, I know from personal experience, there's probably uh, more than one thing that's holding us back. But again, that's the type of thing that we have to identify in order to change. And if you're sitting out there and you're saying, listen, I don't follow Jesus. I don't have a testimony. This, this doesn't apply to me. I want you to know that you, you can have a testimony. 
the, the, one of the best parts about this story is that this, is, this man is the poster child that there is no one with too much baggage for Jesus to get a hold of. There's no one that's like, that, that's just a lost cause. If anyone was a lost cause, it was this guy. But we see Jesus transform him. So if you're sitting there, I want you to know that you can have a testimony. And if you're sitting there and you're wondering what your next step is, I would love, love, love to have a conversation with you. But for now, I'd like to pray for us um, and then we'll move into a time of, of celebrating the Lord's Supper together this morning. So God, again, I do thank you for your power shown in Jesus Christ in this story to transform that. Lord, you can do that in our lives. You can take the things that we struggle with. You can take the things that are in our lives that we need to get rid of, Lord, and you can banish them. And so I pray that we'd recognize the way that you've done that already. You would give us opportunities to share just how much you've done in each of our lives. Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.